Good morning. I'm thankful to be with you guys this morning. Back in, uh, way back in college, in speech class, they said the key is not to get rid of the butterflies, <clears throat> but to get them to fly in formation. And uh, I'm not sure if a swarm is a formation, but we're going to make it work. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study in the life of David and in the Psalms that he wrote this morning, and specifically looking at Psalm 56 and 34 this morning, and looking a little bit uh, backwards to what Gabe talked to us about several weeks ago when David fled from Saul, went to Gath, and was captured there. And these two Psalms were also written surrounding this time in David's life, and we're going to see through this uh, time in David's life, through his testimony, and now through his teaching, how David was transformed from a life uh, controlled by fear to one that was overwhelmingly filled with praise and confidence in God. But before we, uh, before we go and look at David's life, I think there's a couple of verses that would be helpful for us to remember. 2 Timothy 1, 7, or 1, 6 through 7, Paul said, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. In Romans 8, 14 to 15, he said, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And these are truths that David lost sight of at this time in his life, and maybe you and I have lost sight of these truths this morning as we're here today. Even though these passages were written in the New Testament and David didn't have these to go back and read, he did have Joshua 1, verses 8 through 9 that says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But David did not do according to what was written in the book of the law, and he was frightened, and he was dismayed. And we may very well find this morning that we have much in common with David at this time in his life. But before we get into these psalms, let's go back and, and look at David's life to this point. As we read through this, it's really like, this is dramatic stuff. Like, David's life is not, uh, it's not boring. And uh, it's a lot like a TV show you would find on, uh, <clears throat> find on these days, some kind of historical epic uh, about David's life. Um, up to this point, David had been following a pretty upward trajectory. I mean, from the point he was anointed by Samuel to then killing Goliath to marrying the king's daughter to winning victory after victory over the Philistines to having songs written about him to being best friends with the king's son and a frequent guest in the king's house, it seemed like David was invincible. 
Even when Saul had dreamed up some pretty creative ways to get David killed and even tried to kill him himself, David still came out on top. And not to mention the lion and the bear that he had killed earlier in his life. And it seems like to this point that God had been building David's faith. He had been building his confidence in God, but now it seems like God was taking his training to the next level. David's faith had been built, and now it was to be tested, to be refined, to be shaped by God. His faith, David's faith, needed the deepening, abiding power of dependence. To not only know what miracles God can do, but to also know that when God seems to be doing nothing, he is still doing everything. As we find David, this portion of the drama of his life, we find that he has just been informed by Jonathan that there's no hope for safety around Saul. He can't go back to Saul's house because Saul really does mean to kill him. And so David, after a really uh, emotional departure from Jonathan, just takes off running with only the clothes on his back. He seems like he wasn't really prepared for this because he didn't have any weapons, he didn't have any food, just his clothes that he was wearing, and he just takes off running, the tears still blurring his eyes. And we can kind of identify with that feeling a little bit, I think. We know that feeling of hurt and sadness and anger and disappointment and confusion all wrapped up into one giant, messy ball of emotions. And it seems that David was overcome by these emotions as he ran down the road. He comes to Nob, the city of Nob, and he comes to Ahimelech, the priest, and he feeds him a bunch of lies. And through that, he's able to get some food, and he's even able to get a bonus, a sword, a Goliath sword, as you remember from when Gabe taught. And then he takes off down the road again, carrying this giant sword, and pretty much decides he's not safe anywhere in Israel at this point. And so where else is there to go? Well, there's always, uh, there's always uh, Gath, I guess. Uh, it's kind of like, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'm going to go to Gath, right? Which, I mean, the same Gath that Goliath is from, the same Gath that Goliath is from whose head you chopped off in front of the Philistines right before they were decimated by the Israeli army, and, and you're going back to Gath with his sword? This doesn't seem real well thought out, but uh, it wasn't. It was, it, was, it was David being overcome uh, by fear. There's a song in the uh, great cinematic masterpiece, Frozen, and, and there's a line in that song that says, people make bad choices when they're mad or scared or stressed, and David was mad, scared, and stressed in making bad choices. In fact, David is scared stupid, and he is being controlled by fear and controlled by hopelessness and despair, and he is in sin. And not surprisingly, shortly after he arrives in Gath, they recognize him for who he is, they take him into custody, and things get even more desperate. And it's somewhere in here, somewhere in a holding cell in Gath, that God gets a hold of David. 
And then from this experience, we get to see how God worked in David's heart and transform him from a place of fear to a place of faith, as we see him write about in Psalm 56 and 34. But before we look at these psalms, I have a question for us. What do you fear? Or who do you fear? Because there are a lot of things, there's a lot of people to be afraid of in this world, are there not? Today, are you in a situation like David's where things seem to be hopeless? The answer for David here is the same as it is for each one of us when we find ourselves in the messes of our lives, and that is to go to God. First thing to do is to go to God. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 56, and we'll read, these, read this psalm together. Before we do, please uh, join me in prayer this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, and we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us after your likeness, O oh Lord. We pray. We expect that this morning. We thank you for it, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 56, starting in verse 1, join with me as we read. David says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life going to go back and look at these a couple verses at a time in verses one through two we see that David begins right where all of us should when we find ourselves overcome by fear and overcome by the circumstances of life step number one is to go to God step number one is to go to God and this has been something that's been totally missing in this story so far David took off running away from Saul he even came to a high priest someone who could go to God for him and who could intercede for him and instead of going to God at that point he came up with lies and deceit and ended up getting a whole town killed because of it but now he finally changes his course and after digging a giant hole for himself he goes to God and he experiences a transformation that starts with prayer. Even just going to God in prayer is, 
evidence of his repentance, of his lack of trust in God. Second Timothy, if we remember, said God does not give us a spirit of fear. So where does it come from? If you find yourself living with a spirit of fear, ask yourself, where does it come from? Because it doesn't come from God. It comes from somewhere else. And he takes that to God. Romans 14, 23 tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin. And like David, if we are walking by fear instead of walking by faith, we are sinning and we need to go to God. What happens when David goes to God in these verses? Verses 3 and 4, as he goes to God in prayer and asks for his grace, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. He starts off in verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And we can understand that whole dynamic, right, of having fear and faith together. We can understand what it's like to be that father in the New Testament who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We know what it's like to have both of those. And David does as well, but as he goes to God, he gains confidence and he grows in faith to the point in verse 4, now he says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He goes to God first and he remembers his word. It says in verse 4, in God whose word I praise. And that's step number two. And when we're overcome with fear, step number one is to go to God. Step number two is remember his word. And David goes to God, remembers his word, and his faith is strengthened. How do we grow in faith? How do we grow from a faith with fear to a faith that casts out fear? I think we need to take a, a second here because this is key. If we remember God's word, we will see that the way we grow in faith is by growing in his love. God's antidote for fear is his love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When we are overcome with fear and we go to God and seek his love and experience his love, the outflowing of that is faith and hope. Faith and hope are the outflowing of God's love to us. And the antidote for fear in our lives is God's love. 1 John 4, 16 to 18 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence or faith in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. When we are overcome with fear, we need faith and hope. And these come as a result of his love to us. And then David goes on to describe what that love looks like in our own lives and in David's life. As we look after five, verses 5 through 7, he recounts again 
the circumstances that he's in, he recounts or tells, or I'm sorry, goes to God and tells him what's going on. And then in verses uh, 8 and 9, we see him describe God's love for us. And it says that God keeps track of our tossings or our wanderings. When it feels like we are alone, our feelings are wrong. When it feels like you are alone, your feelings are wrong. God sees us, and he is with us, and he cares. His love shows up in that he even keeps track of our tears, David says. For we do not serve a God who is moved only with smart words and logical arguments. We serve a God who is moved by our tears. Second Kings, God tells Hezekiah that he has heard his prayer and seen his tears. We can look back at 1 Samuel and see Hannah's prayer where she wept bitterly and God remembered her. And we can look in the New Testament and see that Jesus had his own tears. John 11, Jesus wept when coming to raise Lazarus and was deeply moved. In Luke 19, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, mourning its unrepentance. And then in Hebrews 5, it says, Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. And in Hebrews 4, Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses and has been tempted in all ways such as we are yet without sin. And then in Revelation 21, at the end of the story, we see Jesus will wipe away all tears and there will be no more sorrow. When you cry, cry to Jesus. When you cry, cry to Jesus. He hears you. Don't hide your tears from him. Don't try to dry your tears yourself before you go to God. Take them to him. He has a bottle for him. He has a book that he writes them down in. He wants them. He wants our hearts. Take them to him. We cannot fix ourselves. As tempting as it might be to get ourselves in order before we go to God, we're wrong. All right? Go to God first. He'll sort it out. Verse 9 tells us why we can go to him and why we can take all, that we, all of our troubles to God because God is for us. It says, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know because God is for me. Do you believe that? Do you believe in your heart that God is for you? He said, come unto me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I will give you rest. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, even you and even me. God is for us. God is for us. In verses 10 and 11, we see this chorus of Psalm 56 repeated again. It was in verse 3 and 4. It says, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me, and you repeat step one and step two again, go to God, remember his word. And it shows us again where David's confidence come from. David's confidence is not in confidence alone, as uh, there's another musical about that. Um, <clears throat> and it sh but God, David's confidence was in God and in his word. And it's helpful to remember the God that we serve he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Prince of Peace. He is sovereign over all the world. He is the 
he is sovereign over all the world and all that happens within the world. The hearts of kings are in his hand to turn wherever he wishes. He is at work in all things so that through all things our good is the result. What evil men and Satan intend for evil, God ultimately uses for good. He holds the whole world in his hands, and in him all things consist. Not a sparrow falls from the sky without his knowledge, and he makes sure that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And based on all that God is, we can trust his precious word. David could look back at the scriptures recounting God's promises to his people and realize, as should we, that God is good and he is in complete control. He could look back at his own life and remember God's word to him through Samuel that he was indeed going to be the next king of Israel. And like Abraham sacrificing Isaac, David could say that even though his current circumstances appeared hopeless and did not seem to line up with God's promise, he had decided that his trust would be in the truth of God's promise no matter what the circumstances look like. In the Lord, whose word I praise should bring all of us back to a place of praise and faith and trust in the good God. How can he who did not spare his own son not graciously, not also with him graciously give us all things? And David reaches the only logical conclusion based on the truth of God's word. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Then in verses 12 to 13, we see this transformation completed. He has moved from looking at his circumstances to looking at God and his goodness and his sovereignty. And he is already starting to plan his praise. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. His focus has moved. There's a choice for each one of us, too, as we face life. What do your circumstances say? David's circumstances said, uh, you're in big trouble. Things are hopeless. You're locked up by the Philistines. You've been chased out of your own country because they want to kill you there. They want to kill you here. They've actually captured you. They're waiting to kill you. You're going to die dead, dying dead, right? That's what his circumstances said. But what does God say? God says, you're going to be the next king of Israel, what has God told you? What has God told me that he's going to deliver us from this life? And when we look at the circumstances, we can choose to listen to what they say or we can look at God's word, his precious word, and remember his promises and choose to trust what God says. What is this light of life that David talks about here in verse 13? You've delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life, in John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. David looked ahead to the salvation of his Lord, from his Lord. And the Psalm of David starts to sound a lot like Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
It's quite the transformation that David goes through. And he's gone from desperate run from Saul and being captured and his life being imperiled to now having complete confidence in God and planning his thank offerings and deliverance even though he's still captive. And as we look back at 1 Samuel, we'll see that David comes up with a plan to escape and it seems that he's decided to take his craziness to the next level. David always seems like one of those guys who's, if you know, has the approach of if you're going to go, go all out. And uh, this is no different. <clears throat> he realizes, starts to realize it seems like maybe only a crazy person would actually show up in Gath with Goliath's sword and think something good was going to happen. And uh, so he decides to play to his strengths and uh, just acts completely crazy, which probably wasn't much of a stretch <clears throat> for him at this point. The Bible tells us he starts scratching on everything. He starts slobbering all over his beard, and in, in those days, much like today, people, you know, guys took their beards pretty seriously, and only a real crazy person would desecrate his own beard. Like, you, if you were just acting crazy, you wouldn't do that, but David, <laughs> David does, and uh, they, they bring him before the king, and if you can imagine, you're these Philistine guys. They must have been thinking, wow, this is a great catch. King's going to be pretty impressed with us. So you'd think David's like on their top five Gaths most wanted somewhere, right? He's the guy that chopped off their main village guy's head, and now he's back. <clears throat> but in God's providence, the king of Gath, Achish, must have been having a pretty rough day because he'd had it up to here with crazy. Like he'd just had it. They show up, David's scratching on things, slobbering on his beard, and the king's like, do I not have enough crazy people in my life already? that you had to go dig up another one for me. And, and he's like, get him out of here. He's had it, okay? We, we know we can identify with Achish too. Uh, <clears throat> but he gets out of there, and all of a sudden David's free. The whole crazy bit pays off for him. And he's out on the road, starts heading off towards the cave of Adullam. And then he writes Psalm 34. And we get to see this transformation complete in his life. This psalm was written in a completely different state of mind from what we saw David earlier. It's arranged so that each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in, a, in order. So it's an acrostic, except for like two verses. They repeated a couple letters. Uh, <clears throat> it's written out in order, and we're going to follow that pattern ourselves here, just one verse at a time as we go through it. And we're going to contrast what Psalm 34 says with what we saw David acting like in 1 Samuel. We get to see the full... Uh, progression here of David going from overwhelming fear to turning to God to receiving faith to praising God and now to teaching others to fear God because David identified that instead of fearing God he had been fearing everything else and the question remains for us today who or what do you fear and that's the central focus of this psalm as well. There's a Hebrew uh, literary technique used here in this psalm that I think is helpful, and that's that the focus of this writing is in the center of the psalm. It's used other places in the Bible. One notable example is in Lamentations, where right smack dab in the middle of Jeremiah's lament, we see the focus of the whole thing show up in chapter 3 when he states that God's mercies are new every morning, and great is God's faithfulness. And you could say the middle is the centerpiece, so to speak. And the centerpiece of this psalm is God's encouragement to us to fear him. So let's read it together, one verse at a time. I think they're up here on the 
screen. There we go. Psalm 34, verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Was God's praise continually on his mouth as he ran from Saul? No. Uh, That may be a good way to monitor our own attitudes as we go through this life. Is God's praise continually on our lips? That doesn't mean that we don't have struggles, and it doesn't mean we don't have sorrows. But through all of those, we should be able to praise God for his goodness. Verse 2 says, Give Sorry, he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Had David been humbled? Yeah, life, God uses life to humble us. And he'd used it with David. David had been humbled. Verse three says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Who's he talking to here? Who's this us in this? What's there? He was all alone here at this point. But David knew that with God, we are never alone. God has his remnant and there are others. As Peter tells us in the New Testament, he says, resist the devil standing firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Just as we suffer together, we are delivered together. And we can praise together, for we serve the same God in the same world and in the same spirit. And David is aware of this and calls us to praise, even though he was still physically alone. Verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now he's seeking the Lord instead of his own craftiness. Step number one, right? Go to the Lord and the Lord delivered him. The Lord is always our deliverer. Not money, not good fortune, not anything else you can think of, but the Lord is our deliverer. Look to him. Verse five, he says, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This is a contrast, huh? I mean, slobbery beard scratching guy, radiant face, not so much. But now after going to God, he says, our faces will be radiant. As we go through trials, if we look to God, our faces too can shine and be radiant in a way that would be totally unexpected. And like Paul and Silas singing praises in a jail at midnight after being beaten and shackled, we can go to God, look to him, and live a life of radiant praise despite even great suffering. Verse 6 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You see David's new attitude of humility. This poor man cried, he says, much like the tax collector in the New Testament who would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven but beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord heard him like he always does. And he saves, as Romans ten thirteen says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Just because we cannot see God does not mean he is not there. He is encamped around the righteous. Have faith. 
in verse 8, one a lot of us are at least familiar with, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And this, sounds, this, this verse kind of sounds like some people's Instagram pages whenever they go out to eat. They take pictures of their food. They post it. I don't know why. It's for us who are at home eating better food to feel sorry for them, to cry for sympathy. <clears throat> but David doesn't want us just to see how good the food looks. He wants us to taste it and know it. He does not call us here to know in your head and to say with your mouth that God is good, but to taste it and to see it. This is a key here, isn't it? Our churches are oftentimes full of people who can say that God is good, but it's hard to tell if they have ever actually experienced that God is good. Is the goodness of God for you like food in a picture that you can see and say, yeah, it looks like it tastes good? Or is the goodness of God something that you have tasted and you know it, and you know it's good, and you've experienced and it's transformed you? In the midst of our tiredness and our fatigue and our pain and our financial difficulty and broken relationships, and during the intensity of experiencing a dying body, can we still see God's goodness? That's when our faces will be radiant, like Stephen looking up into heaven that Antonio told us about in the first service. David had tasted and seen how great the Lord is, and he wants us to taste it too. Do we experience the goodness of God on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday? Do we experience it in a way that will make others want to taste it too? Or is it, yeah, it's okay. It wasn't the greatest, you know. It's fine. What's stopping us? It's not God. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. We should ask God to search our hearts, see if there may be some wicked way in us, whether it's just simply not living by faith or trying to please men rather than God. Are we counting it all joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that God uses those can we say as David did in Psalm 27, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident, for I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's the sort of transformation that we need in our own hearts and act it out in our daily lives. Pray and ask God to help us experience his goodness. In verse nine, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions, he says in verse 10, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The young lions here are the top hunters. These are the guys, if you look at them, you think, wow, they can take care of themselves. Whatever they need, they can get themselves. And David was kind of like that, right? He was a young, brave, victorious warrior who seemed invincible. But now even he had fallen into desperation and fear. And just like the young lions who look strong and look like they can take care of themselves, they too suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What are these 
good things. Because I can think of lots of things that I lack, and you can too. But God says we will lack no good thing if we look to him. And what we think of as good things will often quickly reveal where our hearts are at. Are they in earth or are they in heaven? Are they more, fo- more focused on earth or eternity? Are they focused on ourselves or are they focused on the heart of Jesus? Are the good things in our minds the things that God uses to make us more like Christ? Or are the good things in our minds the things that make our life on earth more comfortable? It's a question I think can be helpful for us to ask ourselves. And if we seek God, we will lack no good thing. Verse 11, the focus of the psalm right here in the middle. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear that overcomes all other fears. And what is the fear of the Lord? I've heard it described a lot. Uh, You probably have too. It's one of those things, I think it's hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. It's, It's hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. And that's what David does for us here. He shows us what it is. He doesn't really try to come on some lengthy discourse of what is the fear of the Lord. He just shows us what it looks like. Verse 12, he asks the question, what man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? In other words, how many of you want to live a long, good, happy life? All right, most of us. I don't want to speak for everybody, but most of us want to live a long, good, happy life. Verse 13, he starts to tell us how. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Again, there's a contrast, right? What did David do when he was overcome by fear and when he was overcome by his circumstances? He he fed Ahimelech a pack of lies. He tried to to deceive his way to salvation or to deliverance. But now, David says, the fear of the Lord is to keep our tongue from evil and speak honestly, even when it might be to our own harm. It's kind of like um, when James tells us about the tongue and it's a, a world of iniquity, he says, full of deadly poison. If we're going to live in the fear of the Lord, we speak honestly. We keep our tongue from deceit. We ask God to help us in that. Verse 14, he says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Again, the opposite of what he did in 1 Samuel. A contrast, when he was overwhelmed by his troubles, he made decisions that were reckless and chaotic. He put himself in positions of danger and joined himself to his enemies. He basically did whatever the opposite was of seeking peace and pursuing it. And who are we associating ourselves with? Are we seeking for an advantage in this life by risking peace? Are we making unwise decisions in order to get a step ahead in this world? Instead, even when it doesn't seem to make sense, we should trust God, associate with the righteous. Do you want to know how to live out the fear of God in your life? Seek peace. Be with the people of peace. Be as the wise that James describes as those who are peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Colossians says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Follow the prince of peace. Verse 15 
of Psalm 34. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. So we look back at David's situation. He had to feel like he was alone. He was running from his best friend, Jonathan. He was away from his wife. He was away from his family. He was alone. He was desperate. And oftentimes we feel the same way. For we, um, <clears throat> I, suspect, I suspect there may not be any more lonely path to walk than when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We can't call up one of our friends who's died before us. It's the ultimate, I think, the ultimate test of faith as we, start, as we step into that dark river where we can't see the shore on the other side and our feet don't touch the ground. And we look to God. But no matter how alone we feel, David tells us that we are to fear God more than death, for he has overcome the grave. We are not alone. God sees us. His eyes are toward the righteous, he says. Do you believe that? We are never abandoned. We just think we are. And when we feel that way, we should do as David did and go to God and cry out as a poor man and he will hear us and he will change our hearts. He puts our tears in his bottle. The fear of the Lord looks like someone who cries out to God with the faith that he sees and he hears no matter how alone we feel. In verse 16, he says, the, fear, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Psalm 37 says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. In verse 17, David says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And then in verse 18, he says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. More encouragement to us to repent and turn to God, for he is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. How much this verse must have meant to someone like Peter, who experienced the restoration of Jesus after he denied him three times. And he appealed to the nearness of God, the nearness that knows the inner depths of our heart. When he said, God, you know that I love you. And then he experienced that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, just like David did. And all of scripture reminds us again and again that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Before we can enter the kingdom of God, we must come to the end of ourselves and come to Jesus, not as an addition to our own goodness, but as the only solution for our sin and our guilt and our death that we deserve for sinning against our creator. Brokenness should lead to repentance, which leads to salvation, which then leads to joy. And for that, we can join in with David and say, as he did, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name together, for he is near to the brokenhearted, and in his presence there is fullness of joy. In verse 19, an important truth, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of, the, out of them all. The righteous have many afflictions, David says. Is that true? We know it's true. Right? They are many, but the Lord delivers us from them all. How does he do that? Verse 20, it says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. What does that sound like? 
John 19, 32 to 36 says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. David writes to us in the psalm that we would fear the Lord, that we would believe Believe what? Believe that he is our deliverer. To come broken knowing that we have violated the commands of God and that we are sinners deserving of death. Verse 21, he says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The righteous, he said in 19, has many afflictions, but the Lord delivers them out of them all, but the wicked will be slain by their affliction of sin. The wicked will be slain by their affliction affliction of sin. What is this wickedness? What is sin? Well, among other things, it is dependence on ourselves instead of dependence on God. Where do you stand today? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Or do you simply say that he is good with no experience of it? Verse 22, how are we delivered says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We're delivered through the Lord. What deliverance was David looking forward to here? Just as, was it just as deliverance from the Philistines or from his own stupidity? No. He was looking further ahead. He had found that a right perspective comes from an eternal perspective. He knew that on earth there will be trouble, but take heart, for God has overcome the world. David did not simply rejoice in his deliverance from the Philistines and from his own stupidity. He rejoiced in his ultimate and eternal salvation from his sins and from the death that he deserved. And he had found confidence in the promises of God. He believed that what God says is true. How about you? Are you going through fiery trials right now? Can you say as Paul did in Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Run to Jesus. Be broken and humbled and repent of fear and lack of faith and of our self-reliance and experience the joy of his goodness. Taste it 
and see it. Come, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed, I come desperate to be rescued, I come empty to be filled, I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb, and I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. This was David's experience. He turned from fear to faith. How? Well, step one, he went to God, and step two, he remembered his word. He turned from peril to praise. He came to fear God more than man through the saving, redeeming power of God by faith through grace. As he says in Psalm 56, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life in Christ. And as he says in Psalm 34, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Where do we stand today? What do you fear? Who do you fear? Run to Jesus. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is firm and steady, that we can stand on it, we can fall on it, we can be broken on it, but we will always be delivered through the blood of Christ. Help us this day and in the days following to go to you, to remember your word, experience your joy, to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Thank you for your love. Help us to abide in it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.